In Israel, who here was on the Israel trip? There's Annette, I see, Annette right there. And there's Beverly. Hey, look at that. Debbie. Wow, Dev never comes to church. Wow. So the Holy Land convicted you of. So I'll tell you a couple stories, not many, because uh, there's just too many to tell. Just, just to let you know, the Lord took such good care of us and blessed us beyond uh, anything we could have imagined. A couple stories. Um, we were staying in a hotel. A cute little gal was serving us. And one of the uh, two of the people befriended her and got to know her quite a bit. And they began to ask questions of her. Uh, uh, where does she live in Israel? She said, I'm Palestinian. I don't consider myself Israeli. And um, anyway, they began to just share and become friendly night after night. And, and on one night, they began to share their faith with her very spontaneously. We each had read a book on Isaiah 53, which is such an important passage of Scripture. And um, they asked her if she would like to receive this book, and she was so open to doing so. So they gave her this book on Isaiah 53. You'll read it sometime and ask yourself the question, who is Isaiah speaking of? Written 700 years before the time of the Lord. Uh, Anyway, uh, they noticed that the hotel manager was observing this as they gave this cute little gal, the book, and uh, they saw him the next day. And so they went to him and they said, we hope we didn't do wrong. Uh, You know, we gave this book to your employee and hope that was okay. He said, absolutely. Uh, And they said to him, would would you like it? And he said, yes. I looked at hers and I would really like to receive it. So he did. Uh, He's an Arab Muslim man. And the hotel manager, quite a good guy. A couple days before, our leader, this was an organization called Hope for Israel. Renee, you know who he is. Uh, Moran Rosenblatt, some of you met him. He came here a few months ago. Um, anyway, he had become friends with this uh, Arab Muslim man years prior. Moran's daughter was in the hospital, and in Israeli hospitals, the, the parents don't have access to meals while their child is being treated, something like this. Anyway, this uh, Arab Muslim hotel manager had a friend who had a friend and saw to it that Moran and his wife were taken care of. Let's just put it that way. Anyway, so the Jewish guy, the Arab guy, became close friends. So then Moran told us, asked us, if our group would be willing to donate about five backpacks and would we... uh, uh, fill it up with supplies we brought. We brought school supplies and candy because uh, he said the hotel manager said he lives near a Muslim family. They're quite poor, and this would be such a blessing to them. Well, needless to say, our group said, absolutely, we'd be, we brought these things for a reason to give them away, and we were just thrilled at the opportunity. So we did, and the uh, hotel manager came to thank us anyway, those kinds of things open the hearts of people. They try to make sense out of, why are these people doing this? We required nothing of them. We wanted to serve them. Anyway, uh, he expressed a tremendous openness to consider who is this Yeshua, who, Hebrew for Jesus, who, who Isaiah 53 speaks about. So anyway, we had a number of very spontaneous opportunities like that. 
Of course, we were on the receiving end, I would say, as we sought to make a deposit in the land. And so thank you for for praying for us. It's wonderful to be back here, although we felt very safe. Is it just me, or uh, did you guys feel at risk over there? Or? Yeah, uh, the news is not is not all that accurate. Uh, this is not to say it isn't uh, an unstable area. The Middle East is quite unstable, and things will cert- certainly, I think, happen on uh, an international scale. Of course, the scriptures tell us about that. But it isn't dangerous in the sense that walking down the street in Chicago is. <laughs> in fact, they, they think we're a very violent society. Uh, over there, they think we're very violent. They don't have things like someone going into a movie theater like in Aurora, Colorado, and aimlessly shooting people. They don't have these things. Uh, they have um, issues for sure, and there definitely are killings. But they're they're political. They're they're religious. They're not random, like we Americans. They don't have carjackings and burglaries, things like this. And so uh, you see people just conducting themselves in with normalcy, going from place to place with uh, perfect safety. I'm not trying to oversell this. I'm just telling you that was just, that's just the case. It's not like what you see on, on TV. So we had a wonderful time. We're perfectly safe. We were by the Gaza Strip even. Oh, uh, by the way, um, did anyone go with me on a prior one of these trips before? Anyone in here? Oh, okay. Uh, I have a, 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 a a picture. Remember we went to the kibbutz and we planted a garden? I have a picture of what it looks like. I'll send it to you all. We planted another garden there on this trip, and when it comes to fruition, we'll get a picture and show that group. But I got a picture just this morning of what we worked on, and it was just does your heart good. We planted uh, gardens on this kibbutz that's a, a targeted area when missiles come from the Gaza Strip. We were probably about three-quarters of a mile from it, of course, at the time, everything was perfectly safe, but it could change in a moment's notice. Anyway, wonderful opportunity to try to bless the people in Jesus' name. So thank you for praying for us and really, really glad to be back. Now, we are in Psalm 35 today. We have finished first and then second Timothy. And as is our fashion, Chuck and I decide to, as a filler, before we go into another major book, we do some Psalms. 35 today because we have done uh, the first 34 Psalms on previous times. How many of the Psalms we'll do now? We don't know. We'll just do a few. When you get tired of them or we get tired of them, (laughs) we'll stop there and go into something else. By the way, we don't know where we're going after the Psalms, as usual. We haven't thought through this, and we're open to suggestions. We don't want to choose a, a book that we have recently done. But we're kind of running out of books of the Bible. There, <laughs> there are only 66, um, unless you're a member of a cult group and they think this, God is always adding scripture. But anyway, there's 66 books and, and we're, we're fast approaching the time when we're covering all of them. Isn't that a good thing? So we may choose one we've done years ago that perhaps you're not familiar with. But if you have any thoughts or suggestions, please, uh, let us know. We haven't had a chance to actually consult. Just yet. But for now, we're on Psalm 35. And as you read it, you'll see it's a Psalm of David. So there's no question about the authorship. That's part of inspired scripture, that little superscript, the Psalm of David. David wrote it. No question about Davidic authorship, but the circumstances are not quite so clear. 
it is thought by most, and I'm one of them, that the circumstances are these. Uh, uh, David was pursued by Saul. Saul was the king a little nuts at times, and so he wanted David's life. And so we think under those circumstances, uh, Psalm 35 was written. By the way, while in Israel, we visited, um, as have some of you in times past, a place called En Gedi, En Gedi, Spring of the Kid. Remember that? Did you all see the, did you have a chance to see the animal in the trees over there, Annette or Debbie? Did you, did you guys see it? It's a, it's a coney or, uh, an, a hyrax. It's mentioned in Psalm 104, I think verse 18, I don't remember. It talks about the ibex and the shephanim. Shephanim is Hebrew for a coney. And there it is on the branches of these trees as we were leaving the place. Uh, anyway, um, David hid from Saul there at En Gedi in caves. And we got a glimpse at how this could happen because there are naturally occurring caves there. They just happen. And they're large enough to hold a number of people. So on one occasion, David was in one with his men. As God would see fit, here comes Saul with thousands in hot pursuit of David to kill him. He goes into a cave for personal reasons, and it happens to be the very cave that David is hiding out in. What an opportunity for David to secure his future, kill the one who wants to rob him of it. In fact, his men, David's men, encouraged him to do so. He said, I cannot do this. I'm going to leave it up to God. And we spoke about Ed and Getty. We should do that too. Let's just entrust our battles to the Lord. Anyway, David uh, let Saul live. And it was God who ensured David's future. He replaced Saul with David, who became king in the line of Messiah. The Lord Jesus, the king of kings, comes from the line of David. So anyway, in that set of circumstances, David being falsely accused, uh, mistreated, abused, and on the verge of being killed, he wrote this, Psalm 35. Take a look, verse 1. Contend, O Lord, with those who contend with me. Fight against those who fight against me. David essentially is saying, God, do to them what they are planning to do to me. Contend with those who are contending with me. Fight against those who are fighting with me. Uh, For the word contend, do you have this rendering, plead my cause? Do you have that? Yeah, it's good. It's an excellent translation. See, it's a legal concept. Uh, David is essentially saying, God, would you be my advocate? There are those who are falsely accusing me. It's on trumped up charges. Would you intervene between me and those who accuse me? Would you be my defense attorney? Be my advocate is is what he says. Plead my cause. By the way, uh, see this right from the outset. He's in a tough circumstances and his, his circumstance in his first recourse is to run to God in prayer. If we get nothing else out of this, get this. Um, make recourse to God. Do you know, when we were saved by the Savior, we think about salvation from our sin as we ought to. But he saved us from a lot of things. He saved us not only from the penalty of our sin, he also saved us from the incorrect notion that we are responsible for ourselves. When he purchased us with a price, when he redeemed us, he essentially said, now I'm responsible for you. I own you, your property. I bought you with a price. Quite a price, the blood 
of the Lamb, the Lord Jesus. And so we Christians have to really, really fight against this tendency to think we have to take matters into our own hand to take care of things. It's not true. We're owned. We are possessed. And so we could, we could appeal to God and we could say, God, you are responsible for me. That's essentially what David's doing. You contend with me. You uh, uh, for me. You fight these battles. I am yours. I belong to you. Folks, don't minimize what it means to be possessed by the king of kings. So whatever may come our way, hurtful though it is, no question about it, don't rush to think, I've got to do something about this. I have to look out for number one. I have to pull myself up by my own bootstraps. If I don't take care of myself, no one will. Be careful about all that. It's all, those are all lies and deceptions. A better thing is to do what David did. God, I'm your kid. You're my dad. Take care of me. By the way, while in Israel, we heard some of us from time to time, young children referring to their dads as Abba, A-B-B-A, Abba, Abba. It's very common. But it's not common ever to hear a Jewish person refer to God that way. Abba means daddy, papa. Jews don't have this notion of a personal God. They have a notion of the bigness of God, but not the nearness of God. That's true of Muslims as well. That's true of every religious grouping. There's a very clear notion about the bigness of God, the transcendence of God, but not the same notion about the nearness of God. But we are to have that. We are to to be able to approach the throne of grace, charge right into the throne room and make our appeal to daddy, to papa, to abba, crawl up on his lap, warts and all, snotty nose and all, expecting him to envelop us with his big old arms and take care of us. This idea of independence from creator has got to end. He saved us from that. He is Emmanuel, God with us. So we have to refer to him as Abba. The Lord Jesus referred to his father that way, and we have permission to do the same. You see what I mean? So David is sort of taking advantage of that intimacy with Almighty God. And then in verse 2 he says to God, Take hold of buckler and shield and rise up for my help. Your translation may use the word armor. Uh, There's some... Difference of opinion, uh, what are we talking about here, buckler and shield? Um, these are both shields, but one is small and the other is big. So one is so big that it covered, it protected the entirety of one's body. So some translators render it armor, like body armor. It doesn't matter. It's nothing to lose your salvation over. It's just an interesting deal. So one word refers to a big shield, one a smaller shield. That's all. So God is saying, verse 1, be my lawyer. Verse 2, go to war for me. (laughs) He doesn't want God just to be his defense attorney, verse 1. He wants God to do battle for him and even suggests metaphorically the weaponry. So verse 3, draw also the spear. And the battle axe to meet those who pursue me. Now get this. Don't miss this. Then David says, say to my soul, I am your salvation. Listen, David's a tough guy. For sure. He's a battle-tested, battle-worn soldier. But he's a human. So he makes this petition to God. Would you speak to the inner recesses of my being? 
Would you set, would you declare in a way I could receive to my soul? Would you communicate to me in a penetratingly deep way that you are my salvation? I know this here in my head. Cognitively, I got it. Emotionally, not so much. Would you bypass thought and pierce feelings? Would you just persuade me on the deepest of levels that you are my salvation? Don't be ashamed to do that. We know him as Savior. But to experience him as Savior from the throes of life, that's another thing. So David says, oh God, break through to me. Persuade me that you are my salvation. By the way, see the word salvation? The Hebrew word underlying that word is from a root word, and it's this, Yeshua. That's right. Yeshua goes to Greek, Jesus. Greek goes to English, Jesus. Some people say that Jesus is never mentioned in the Old Testament. Those are people who don't know what they're talking about. By the way, every time you see the word salvation or a form of it, that is a form of the name Jesus. In essence, what we're reading here is, say to my soul, I am your Yeshua. I am your Jesus. Do you remember in Matthew's gospel when God the Father instructs what the babe born in Bethlehem should be named? He shall be called Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. He shall be called Savior because that's what he came to do. So here, uh, that's what it says. Say to my soul, I am your Jesus. Then verse 4, let those be ashamed and dishonored who seek my life. Let those be turned back and humiliated who devise evil against me. Let them be like chaff before the wind with the angel of the Lord driving them on. Let their way be dark and slippery with the angel of the Lord pursuing them. Two times, verse 5, verse 6, you see the phrase, angel of the Lord. Who do you think that might be? Um, actually, it's a, it's, it's a, it's oftentimes, not always, oftentimes in the Old Testament, when you read the phrase angel of the Lord, it's a reference to the pre-incarnate existence of the Lord. So let, so let me explain what that means. In a few weeks, as we heard, uh, Al mentioned we're going to celebrate Christmas. Eight weeks, or I don't know how many weeks, we're going to celebrate Christmas. It's a wonderful thing to celebrate. Just don't do it wrongly. For instance, are we really celebrating the coming into existence of the babe born in Bethlehem? We are not. Because Jesus is pre-existent. If he's God, that means he possesses divine qualities. God has no beginning nor any end. Therefore, Jesus always was and will be. Christmas doesn't celebrate his coming into being. It celebrates his coming in the form of enfleshed humanity. He always existed. Well, what did he do before the Christmas event? Lots of stuff. And oftentimes he appeared, is referred to in his ministry as angel of Yahweh, angel of 
the Lord. He always was. He was always ministering. He pierced our space-time dimension at the Christmas event and was enfleshed. But this is an example of his pre-incarnate. Incarnation, when God became flesh. Pre-incarnation, God before he assumed a human body. Now verse 7, For without cause they hid their net for me. Without cause they dug a pit for my soul. Two times the phrase, without cause. It's hugely important. Listen, you may have given some people cause to harm you, hate you, be offended by you, and treat you unfairly. You could do it. For instance, you steal your neighbor's lawnmower and they don't like you. You just gave your neighbor cause to not like you. You cannot pray this way, in that case, to God. If you, a Christian, have sinned and incurred the wrath of those you have sinned against, you cannot pray verse 7. There is a cause why you're being treated poorly. It's because you behaved poorly. You invited it. This means it really makes sense to try to obey God. Because if you obey God, then you can pray like David did in verse 7. You could say, oh God, come to my aid and assistance because I've given them no cause against me. Have you heard the word integrity? Person of integrity. It means harmony in the parts. We're made up of aspects of being. Integrity means there's nothing inconsistent, there's no disharmony, meaning the way we are in public is consistent with the way we are in private. So we don't come to church on Sunday and sing songs and look like holy people and then act like reprobates on Monday. That would be a lack of integrity, disharmony in the aspects of your being. Integrity is the basis for being able to pray verse 7. Oh, God, I didn't invite this. I didn't instigate it. I didn't lie. I didn't see, dece- deceive. I didn't steal. I didn't offend. I didn't cause anyone to stumble. Oh, God, you must come to my assistance because they are putting themselves upon me without cause. So, so if there's cause, you've given someone cause to respond negatively to you, you must go to that person, confess, ask for forgiveness, get it right with God and press on. But that's not what's happening with David. Without cause, he's being targeted. And verse 8, he says, therefore, let destruction come upon him unawares. Let the net which he hid catch himself into that very destruction that he sets for me, let him fall. Okay, so I want to pause here just for a second. We've looked at the first eight verses. Um, This psalm is called an imprecatory psalm. It's kind of a big word, but it's an important word. So say it with me, imprecatory, imprecatory. Uh, There are more than one imprecatory psalm. How many psalms do we have in toto? 150. Some of those are imprecatory psalms. An imprecation is when you call down the judgment of a higher authority on those you think need to be judged, just as David is doing. An imprecation is essentially a curse. 
When you call upon Almighty God to judge or to deal with certain ones, that's an imprecation. That's what David's doing. David is saying, people are out to destroy me, and, and God, I, I pray you would destroy them. Now, there's a problem with the imprecatory Psalms. It's this. When you get to the New Testament and you look to the teachings of Jesus, doesn't he say things like, pray for those who persecute you? Someone smacks you on the cheek, turn the other cheek. You know, bless those who give you a hard time. You know that stuff? Well, now you got the imprecatory Psalms. How do you, how, how do you, how is it consistent? So, uh, what do you think? <laughs> what do you, I mean, how do you explain this? How, I mean, can we praise stuff like this? Can we do that? Um, I mean, there's a bunch of people. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. 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 Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know it. I got, I'm, I'm with you as well, because uh, that's what we want to do. We, it empowers you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, I think it's a good thought, and thanks for being bold. You you did good. Yeah, yeah. Deb? That's what, the, yeah. You're right. Yeah. <laughs> Ah, that's a great insight. If you've ever prayed and deliver us from our enemies, Debbie's saying, well, then someone's got to win. If you're going to be delivered from the enemy, that means the enemy is losing. That's essentially an imprecatory prayer. Okay, gotcha. Yes, sir. Yes. Okay, so so our brother's saying we're instructed to reward various ones according to to their works. So a brother is saying, and that's how he, he, he sometimes prays in, in light of what, what the person is doing. Good, good, good. Thank you. Yes, sir? That's an excellent point. So in case you didn't hear, our brother is saying, well, um, there's a difference between praying for the destruction of an evildoer and praying for the end of the evil in the evildoer. Uh, the, and the brother, I think, is saying that one is acceptable and the other is not ex- acceptable. Good, thank you. Interesting point of view. Yes, sir? That is a great insight. I don't know if you heard it. Um, when your brother's saying, when you're being persecuted, you should pray for the persecutor. But when God, in a sense, is being persecuted, you can pray something like the imprecatory psalm. I think you are onto something. So, so, so let me expand. Uh, by the way, thanks for the thoughts. Everyone gave a wonderful facet. It's a tough issue. Um, David realized. He is in the line of Messiah. Did you know that? He realized he's going to be the chosen king of Israel, Saul's replacement, and that Messiah will 
will come from the Davidic line. You can read the, the genealogies in the New Testament, Matthew or Luke, I forget which, and it'll indicate that Messiah has to come from the line of David. By the way, that's one of the marks of who the Messiah is. This is how we know someone like Reverend Moon ain't the Messiah. Because he doesn't come from the line of David. So David knew he's in the Messianic line. And so for those to persecute and seek the life of David is in essence to interfere with, with God's redemptive plan for humankind. Kill David, interfere with the line of Messiah. So our brother is sort of right. What, not sort of right, very right. David is not defending himself against a personal offense. You can't do that. You can't call down the wrath of God on someone who cuts you off on 45. You're not allowed to do that. You can think it, but you can't say, Lord, you see what that guy did? Kill him. You, you, you can't do that. Someone who got you the parking spot, someone who cuts in line at Burger King, you cannot do that. You can think that stuff, and I know you do, but, but you, you can't really abuse the privilege of speaking to God by calling down from God curses on people who personally have offended you. For that, you got to develop a little thicker skin and just get over it. But when it comes to the reputation and work of God, that's entirely different. So for instance, now Deb gave a great example. Here's another, wherever Deb, there's Deb. Here's another example. Have you ever prayed, our Father, who art in heaven, then what comes next? Hallowed be thy name, then what comes next? The, the kingdom come, the, wait, 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 well, you're going too fast. You're going, <laughs> thy kingdom come, thy will be done where? Okay, stop already. Okay, good, good. Thy kingdom come on earth. Now, wait a second. You know what you just said? God, I want your kingdom to manifest itself on earth, which means you've got to vacate all the kings of the earth who are doing a, a lousy job at it. You have got to get rid. Whenever you pray that, I know we're doing it just quickly here, but if you, when you say, oh God, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as in heaven, you're saying get rid of the knucklehead in North Korea, get rid of the guy in Iran, deal with all of these people, let your kingdom manifest itself on earth, which means the kings of the earth who are evil have to be replaced. And by the way, I think that's an imprecatory psalm, a prayer, and it's perfectly acceptable. It's not about you being treated rightly. It's about the redemptive plan of God being able to fully manifest itself on earth. And there's something else. God created certain institutions. One is the family. It's his idea. Marriage, family. We didn't come up with that. He did. Another one is the church. God came up with the idea of the church. And a third institution is government. The purpose of government is to do well and protect the citizenry. When a governmental leader is failing to do what God requires him as a, or her as a governmental leader to do, I think we can pray against that person. So for instance, I mentioned the guy in North Korea. He's, he's made himself extremely wealthy on the backs of his impoverished people. I don't know if you knew this. He's surely an anti-God, anti-Christian entity. You can be killed for the faith in North Korea. I mean, not even Dennis Rodman could get through to this guy. You know, Dennis Rodman made a couple trips over there. It's just to show you, maybe it's just me. But I think we're in big trouble 
when Dennis Rodman is the ambassador to North Korea. I mean, he can really block shots. I mean, I rooted for Dennis Rodman when he played, but he's not exactly the same symbol of stability to deal with. But anyway, that's the way it is. It just shows you how nuts the world is. But anyway, uh, the guy in North Korea, uh, um, I think we can pray, oh, God, uh, I want to pray that that man would repent and experience your mercy and forgiveness just as I have. Oh, God, I pray that you might grant him repentance so that he doesn't have to give account to you because he'll fail. But God, short of that, if that's not going to happen, would you please deal with him for the sake of the people allotted to his watch care and for your glory so that the gospel would go forth, so that he would cease murdering people before they have a chance to hear the gospel. Oh God, I pray you would deal with him. That's essentially an an imprecation, you see what I mean? But it's not for personal offense reasons. It's for great commission reasons. So uh, I pray the same thing about the guy in Iran. Um, um, he's a dangerous anti-Christian figure for sure. And I pray, oh, I don't think anyone is beyond being redeemed. So I pray, oh, God, for his redemption. Why should we be treated with grace and mercy and someone else not? What Jesus did is sufficient to cover for anybody's sins. So that's what I pray. But then I say, but oh, but oh God, if he's going to continue to harden himself against you and resist the gospel, then I pray for your glory and the sake of the people allotted to his charge. Would you please deal with him? And I want to tell you something. I think God answers those prayers. And here's some evidence. Do you ever notice that evildoers on the thrones of world government have a relatively short shelf life? You ever wonder why? For instance, remember the guy in Cambodia years ago, again, in Pol Pot? He killed, they say, millions of his own people. Not thousands, millions. Khmer Rouge, remember that stuff? How are you going to get rid of a guy like that? He's so strong. Do you remember Idi Amin, Uganda? Remember how many of his own he killed? How are you going to get rid of him? Do you remember a guy named Hitler? I just comes to mind. How are you going to replace, how are you going to get rid of the Third Reich? Nobody has strength to do that. On and, let me tell you this. Do you, do you know a guy named Mohammed Morsi? He gets elected the leader of Egypt by the vast majority. He's the head of the Muslim Brotherhood. It's one of the most violent terrorist groups around. He's the country leader. What does he do? He leads the country into economic shambles and horrific persecution of Christians. Seventy churches burned to the ground, bombed or burned in Egypt. Coptic Christians shot dead in the course of their worship. By the way, it's still happening, not to the same extent. I started to pray, oh God, Mohammed Morsi needs a savior, lest he be judged for his horrific sin. Please grant him repentance. But if not, for the sake of the Egyptian people, please replace him. God did. Now, I'm not the expert. Our brother and sister knows much more about the man now in charge who we favor. I think we would say this. He's cleaning up things like crazy. Uh, with regard to the uh, um, Muslim Brotherhood and in the Sinai, uh, Hamas are killing Egyptian uh, soldiers and police in the Sinai. But the uh, Egyptian army under new leadership now is, is quelling that. So, so um, 
uh, do you remember a guy named uh, Muammar Gaddafi, Libya? Gone. Do you remember a guy named Saddam Hussein? Gone. I, I, I don't think my prayers have power. I don't want to re- but I think God hears the petitions of his kids. It's like that. It's Abba, right? What dad doesn't listen to his kids. So we pray, Abba, Father, they're dying in Syria. Do you know they're dying in Syria? Uh, Assad is killing his own people. They're dying in Syria. (laughs) I pray, oh God, grant that country a leader after your own heart who will protect them and do that which is good for them and replace those who are not. So that's, that's an imprecation, so to speak. Again, you can't do it for personal reasons. Fight my battle. My employer didn't give me a, a raise. Nail him. You can't do stuff like that. It has to do with the glory and the plan of God. So listen, uh, David was familiar with Genesis chapter 12. Do you agree? Yeah, he was. He knew Genesis 12. Genesis 12 the first few verses. God takes Abram, he wasn't Abraham yet, from modern-day Iraq, brings him to the land of Canaan, modern-day Israel. He said, this is your place, I'm giving it to you and people after you, and by the way, there's a covenant between me and you and your people, and I'll bless those who uh, take care of the covenant community, and I'll curse those who curse them. David reads this. David says, hey, I'm part of the covenant with Abraham. Saul's trying to snuff out my life. Saul is trying to interfere with covenant blessing. Oh, God, I'm just praying in light of what your word already said. That's perfectly acceptable. Oh, God, I'm praying against those who curse the covenant community that you would curse them. That's, that's not David being angry and making up stuff. That's David knowing the word of God and praying and keeping with it. So, uh, okay, some thoughts about the imprecatory psalms. I think Psalm 35 is an illustration of a New Testament principle found in Romans 12, verse 19. Here's what it says. Romans 12, 19. Never, so never means what? Yeah, yeah, it means never. Okay. Never take your never take your own revenge. So I read that and I say, man, you're not talking to me. But then the next word says, beloved. Oh, man, that's me. Never, Paul's writing, never take your own revenge, beloved. Beloved are the people who are loved by God. That's me, that's you. So it's us. No loophole here. Never take your own revenge, beloved. And so you cry out, well, what's the option? but leave room for the wrath of God. Just as it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. So you see where it says, don't take your own revenge, leave room for the wrath of God? So you got two options when someone wrongs you. You can try to get justice yourself, but if you do that, you just squeezed God out. You didn't leave room for the wrath of God. Or you can say, God, I'm not going to do a thing about this because you are a better justice maker than me. Therefore, have at it. 
So God says to you, you either take care of your own issues or let me. That's it. Never take your own revenge. Leave room for the wrath of God. That's the way it is. So here's the deal. You and I are not better justice makers than God. Let him take care of business. And you know what we have to get over? We really have to get over, me, you, this notion that we shouldn't be treated unfairly. You know, we should be treated with dignity. We should be treated rightly. Don't you know who I am? You know, the stuff like that. Was David treated rightly? Was King Jesus treated rightly? Why are we so shocked when the world doesn't treat us rightly, fairly? I mean, that's, that's normative. So we shouldn't be so shocked. And the decision is, do I do something about it or do I let God do something about it? David decided to do the latter. Let God handle things. So verse 9, get this. My soul shall, that's future, shall rejoice in the Lord. It shall exult in his salvation. First eight verses, petition. Verse 9, praise. Three times you'll see that in this psalm. If we were to do an outline, it would be part A, B, and C. Part A, B, and C begin with petition. Oh, God, intervene. And then each parts, part A, B, and C, end with praise. In anticipation of God coming through. He hadn't come through yet. But David believes God is going to provide for him. Therefore, in verse 9... He says, I'm going to rejoice in the Lord. I'll exult in his salvation. Now you get part two, part B. More petition and complaint. Verse 10. All my bones will... Oh, I'm sorry. Verse 10 is also part of the praise. Verse 9 and 10. Everything about me will say, Lord, who is like you, who delivers the afflicted from him who is too strong and the afflicted and the needy from him who robs him. David got all this out. He cleared the emotional air. And now he comes to his theological senses and realizes God's going to take care of him. So verse 9 and 10 are praise. So here's the deal. David knew God was going to come through for him. How did he know that? Was he more godly than us? No. He just looked back on prior experience. And he saw how God had always brought him through. So let me illustrate by this. Um, hey, God, hey, hey, uh, Brenda, could you could you please? Yeah, yeah, but just for the sake of the class, okay? Um, um, so um, where was I? Uh, yeah. So every day I get up uh, and I utter I utter this word, Ebenezer, Ebenezer. You've heard of it. Have you heard like Ebenezer Baptist Church? Ebenezer. It means rock or stone of help. In the Old Testament, there was an episode where Israel constructed a pillar of stones, kind of like a landmark, so as to say, thus far, O God, you have helped us. So I get up every morning and I say that, Ebenezer, thus far you've helped me. So today is October the 27th, 2013. I could say, Ebenezer, thus far the Lord has been my help. So I'm going to be 64, and in all these years, up until today, I can say, Ebenezer, what happens tomorrow? I don't know. I don't know. 
I have a feeling if I'm still alive, I'll move, figuratively speaking, the Ebenezer Stone one day further. And on October 28th, 2013, I'll wake up and say, Ebenezer. So I have a track record of seeing that God is trustworthy. And this is what he wants for us. It's not a leap from logic to faith. You Christians just blindly leap into the arms of this imaginary Jesus. That's not true. God wants to build up our trust and confidence in him, and he does so through life experience like David's, where we can say, in every other time up until now, when I was at the end of myself, when my resources were insufficient, when I was weak to the point of being helpless, Ebenezer, you were my rock of help. You brought me forth. So that's why David could skip over the circumstances, jump into verses 9 and 10, and say, I'm living in anticipation of the time when you will once again provide for me and I will praise you for your salvation. That's the nature of the Christian life, folks. And that's why it's pretty difficult. Because God wants to show himself able and willing to see us through the throes of life until the time of his return. There are just going to be times when we feel overwhelmed and like we're not going to make it. And then I'm not bragging. I'm just trying to tell you, I don't know how I got this far except Ebenezer. The Lord has been my help. We went to Israel. We planned. We prayed for sure. But our experience is not explainable by anything we did. We have to say, God, you are our help in Israel. So let me offer you this challenge. If your life is explainable by your wit and wisdom, strength and resources, you may not be a Christian. But if your present life is explainable in no other way other than Christ in you, you're probably a Christian. The world is filled with many resourceful, skillful people who make a go at life, put a plan into effect, implement it successfully, and brag about it. You want to get to the point where there is no explanation for your being but that your Savior is saving you, not just from sin, but from the throes of life. That's the kind of life you want where it isn't your wit and wisdom, brilliant planning and strength, you know, you, you know all this stuff, pull yourself up by your own bootsteps, you know, nobody's going to take care of you, take care of you. It's nonsense. It's sheer and utter nonsense. He who saved us, will he not also with him, his son, also freely give us all things? And God wants our confidence in him to grow, so he gives us confidence-building experiences. What are they? Pain, loss. And we cry out to him, sometimes in not a very um, uh, gentle way. Sometimes it's with anger. But, 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 but then God sees us through. I talked to a fellow in the last class who suffered quite a devastating loss um, a few months ago. When we met, he was not functional almost. It was a, a divorcement, an affair. I mean, it was just bad. Couldn't hardly function. And then I saw him today, and he hurts for sure. How do you get over something like that? But no longer was he devastated, overwhelmed. He's in Bible study, his head's up. 
And I asked him, to what do you attribute this? He didn't say Ebenezer, but in so many words, he said, I don't have any explanation. God took care of me. He said, the intensity of the pain is not there like it used to. The pain is, but the disabling intensity of the pain. How did it go away? No, no, he got human help, counseling and all the rest. I got that. But he's attributing this, his greater sense of well-being, Ebenezer, thus far, God brought, I don't know how I'm functioning today because a few months ago I didn't think I was going to make it. Don't you see? His present life is not explainable in any way except God was faithful. Now, folks, I don't like this about the Christian life. I don't like it. But that's the nature of it. It isn't going to be smooth sailing. Why? We never get to see God's supply. We never get to see. We have to be in the valley and see that he'll provide for us there. We have to be in the desert. We have to be in the wilderness. That's just the way it is. So we make a connection between our desperate prayers and God's gracious provision. And then the next time around, we could do just what David did. We still, we're human. We have emotion. We still pour out our heart. We petition God. And then there's a window when the emotion clears and we utter verses 9 and 10. We say, I'm going to exult in your name. I will praise you for your salvation. That's not a blind leap from logic to faith. That's his history of interaction with a faithful God. Do you have one like that? That's the nature of the Christian life. And, you know, we used to sing a song, The Longer... How's it go? Yeah, that's it, Bob. The longer I serve him, the sweeter he grows. That's the nature of the Christian life, this marvelous adventure of walking hand in hand with Almighty God. We don't know about tomorrow, but when we run into something tomorrow that's a giant-sized challenge, we look back on prior ones and we say, God, I I can't explain how I got through those. I didn't. You got me through those, Ebenezer. Thus far, the Lord has been my rock of help. Can you say that? I hope so. David could, and that's what he did. Then verse 11, uh, he continues his petition again. I'll summarize. You know, he's talking about malicious witnesses. They repay me evil for good. Um, Verse 15, they rejoice over my stumbling. And verse 16, they're like godless jesters. Then verse 17, he asks one of the two questions that haunts all of us. How long? Lord, how long will you look on? That's a hard one, isn't it? How long? So David believed in the Most High God and his ability to help, but the timing of God's help really caused him to stumble. Same with us. How long? By the way, what's the other question we ask? Yeah, why? Why and how long? Those trip us up. I mean, I pray for something for three days, and if God doesn't come through, I'm saying, how long? What's up? We have to accept not only God's willingness and ability to intervene, but also his timing. That's a rough one. So David says, how long will you look on, rescue my soul, my only life from the lions? And then you get at the end of that second part of the psalm. Here you go again, verse 18. I will give you thanks in the great congregation. I'll praise you among a mighty throng. He says, God, I know you're going to come through in a way that's inexplicable. And when you come through, I'm going to give you the credit publicly. That's what he said. And that's the other reason why our loving father allows us to go through stuff. 
so that when he provides what we need while we're going through stuff, we will witness for him. We will testify in the throng publicly, not privately. We will say, let me tell you what the Most High God has done for me in a similar situation. In Israel, uh, one night at dinner, I had a conversation with the relative of two people who went with us. She happens to live in Israel. And they invited her to have dinner with us, and I had the privilege of, uh, having, of sitting with this couple and th- this gal, the relative. Her husband left her two years ago, two teenage boys, well, a 12-year-old and a 14-year-old. She's really struggling to make ends meet. The boys are suffering from the throes of the absence of their dad. Um, She was quite distraught. We sat across from one another, and I told her about the Most High God. And I told her about how he has been a help to me during overwhelming times, and I told her, don't you need his help? Don't you want his help? And then I showed her with a salt and pepper shaker (laughs) the division between us and God, and not even all our mitzvot, she spoke Hebrew, mitzvot, good deeds, could bridge the gap. And that's why Jesus came in the gap between us, salt and, and pepper shakers and stuff like that. She cried. By the way, we put her in touch with uh, Joanna in Moran. Remember that gal in uh, Moran's office? She's going to follow up with her. I simply testified, not from a book, but from life. The God who has helped me, why would he not want to help you if only you'd be willing to connect with him his way? So you see why God allows those experiences, you see? So that, there's a verse in Corinthians that says, we have been afflicted so that we might comfort those who are similarly afflicted with the comfort with which we ourselves have been comforted by God. Isn't that something? The way you get to minister to people is by hurting enough to need the Lord's ministry yourself. And when you receive it, then you offer comfort to others. Isn't that a tough price to pay? Did anyone volunteer for that? No. We say, God, use me. That's easy to say, right? He says, sure, but I got work to do. You're not ready to be used. What do you think? You're useful just the way you are? You're not. I'll make you useful. I'll give you a story to tell. And the story is a hard one. So David praises God, verse 18. I'm going to pick up the pace here. Uh, Continues in verse 20 with his petition and then gets to verse 27. Look at this. Let them shout for joy and rejoice who favor my vindication. He has spoken, he has complained about those who favored his demise. All of a sudden, verse 27, he's mentioning those who favor not his destruction, but his vindication. He says, oh God, those people are so dear to me. Let them shout for joy and rejoice. Let them continually say, the Lord be magnified who delights in the prosperity of his servant. Who are those people? Friends, (laughs) like-minded people, godly people. 
Folks, I think you and I will increasingly need one another. The persecution we uh, read about in various places is coming close to home. I think it will increasingly happen in a post-Christian America. Where are you going to run? To church. I believe our reason for commitment to church is going to be different, more vital than ever before. We're going to need a place to come into from the cold where there are like-minded people who could pray with us and for us, hold up our hands, be an encouragement, and who could understand, just as David had those friends. So when I was in the army, um, when we were at peace, we were in big trouble in the army. When we didn't have a focal point, we used to call it the threat. When we didn't have the threat, we would turn against one another. So guys would get in barroom fights in bars. They would beat up their wives. They would be insubordinate. They'd get in trouble. Because an army is a useless entity except for one purpose, dealing with the enemy. If we don't see the enemy out there, we will take our training and turn it inside, internally. It's really bad. When my son was in Afghanistan with his, the, as a chaplain with the troops, uh, they were at peak performance when they came back to Fort Bragg. Now his time was spent <laughs> on uh, domestic squabbles, bailing guys out of jail, and all the rest. Our training is to fight against the enemy. If there is no enemy, we will fight against one another. And we Christians are the same. Our training and calling is to be salt and light and to pierce the darkness because not even the gates of Hades can prevail against the church. And when we're not taking the gospel out there, then we will turn on one another and we'll start complaining about really important things but not that important. We'll complain about musical style, temperature, the comfort of the environment, whether or enough parking spots, whether people wear ties or not. I didn't say these are unimportant things, but they're really not that important. Uh, The Bible tells us there's only two types of people in the world, and they're not Calvinists or Arminians, Pentecostals or not. No, the two types of people are those who have the Son and those who don't. And even though all these things are important issues, and I have a point of view on all of them, I won't divide over any of them. I won't divide from someone else who's Christ's over a different perspective on some of these issues. Why? We can't afford to because the world is really out to get us. And the evil one is turning up the burner because he's a student of the Bible and I think he knows his time is short. Turning up the Bible, uh, the, the, uh, the fire. As the enemy is turning up the fire, there are more opportunities for gospel sharing than I've ever seen in my life. I think our group will report this. We ran into nothing but openness in Israel by Jews and Muslims with regard to the gospel. It was unbelievable. This, the opportunities, just in casual conversation. Along with it is tremendous growing persecution of the church. We need each other. In spite of differences, we must not divide because we have Christ in common and he is the tie that binds. So I think what we're going to see is just what David did. 
there's a growing number of people who are assaulting me for my belief system. And therefore, I need a number of people who are kindred spirits, like-minded. So I think that'll be a good thing for the American church. We're rather spoiled. We're, we're consumers, you know what I mean. And uh, if the product is not delivered that we're paying for, we go to another church. <laughs> I think we're going to stop seeing that quite so much. And I think we're going to see people valuing one another's fellowship a little more and not getting bent out of shape about some of these theological things that are in-house discussions. Family members are free to differ about eschatology, you know, future things and so on. I have a strong point of view, but I never would want it to be um, a, uh, a judge of fellowship or another person's spirituality. So I, I, I was intrigued by how David ends this psalm. Oh, God, he said, by the way, give joy to those who are my comrades who are interested in my vindication. Take care of them. And then he ends once again, third time. Verse 28, my tongue shall declare your righteousness and your praise all day long. Isn't this interesting? A flurry of emotion. Um succeeded by praise for events that have not yet taken place. <laughs> Blind faith? No. Based on his track record, God had come through. God is the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. He's immutable. He does not change. How could it be that he who gave us his only begotten son would not also with him freely give us all things? David knew that kind of thing. He knew the character of God and began to praise him in advance for an outcome that he expected to come, but that had not yet, not yet come. You are in good hands. So am I. I don't fully comprehend the ways of God. His timing is not mine. So I ask why and I ask how long. But I have enough Ebenezer experiences, so do you, to give God some credit. He's the most high God. He's sovereign and he's also good. And he does good things on behalf of his kids. It's good to be a Christian. I saw Muslims. I saw Jews. I saw every other kind of religion in Israel. There are attractive elements in each. Nobody is more beautiful than the Savior who is the Lord Jesus. I'd rather be connected with him than to any religious grouping on planet Earth. And I know you would say the same thing. So Lord Jesus, based on the connection... We have with you. Look how freely we're able to just bow before you and speak. We need no other mediator but you. We need no special garments, uh, clerical or other kinds. We could speak to you just as kids to Abba, Father. Thank you so much for being so big and so powerful and so great and yet so gentle and kind and accessible at the same time. How do you do it? You are perfect in all of your perfections. That's why our boast is in you. We don't boast about our own strength. It's pretty limited. Our own virtue, not much. Our own goodness, we are not good. We boast in you. Thank you for redeeming us, possessing us. Thank you for using us to your glory. And thank you for your investment in our lives. Thank you for proving to us day by day that you are indeed trustworthy. 
Thank you, Lord Jesus, for coming. Thank you for interceding for us right now. And thank you in advance for coming again, during which time your kingdom indeed will be established on earth. This we look forward to in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you folks. Look, we finished early.